our lives are filled with questions. Some questions we're faced with are ordinary, routine, and, and essentially unimportant. What am I going to wear today? What do you want to eat? Uh, what do you want to watch on TV? These questions are not terribly important. They likely won't have any major impact upon our lives. But some questions are very important. Will you marry me? What are we going to name the baby? Uh, what is my prognosis, doctor? These questions are important and will have a long-term impact upon our lives. But there is one question that is more important than them all. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 30, uh, page 769 your pew Bible to see this question. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Mark 8 and 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. The title of the message this morning is The Most Important Question. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You're great and glorious. You're wonderful and worthy. We come today and we bow and we surrender our lives to you. <clears throat> Father, we do want to have a view of you that is accurate and big. Father, we don't want to live a limited life. We, we're often afraid of putting too much trust in you. We're often afraid, Lord, of expecting and believing too much of you. Our Lord, forgive us for that. Guide us and open our minds to understand you are the God we we can't exaggerate, Lord, that no matter how big we we understand you to be, no matter how big we think you are in our minds, you're bigger still. Our, our finite minds cannot understand an infinite God. And Father, let that be something that that is encouraging. Let that be something that that rather than maybe discouraging us, let that be something that spurs us to to seek you more, to know you better, to better understand who you are and what you're like. Father, we come today with a desire to learn about Jesus. To learn from what he says in this passage. Father, the question he asked the disciples is the most important question we could ever answer in our lives. And Father, all of us in here today, we all have an answer to this. That's not a question. The only question is, do we have the right answer? For there is a right answer. And there is many Wrong answers. So today, let your Holy Spirit use the word, draw us to you, and let us have the right answer about who we say Jesus is. Fill me with your spirit, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. We love you, Lord. Have your way in all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the disciples have been with Jesus for quite a while. And they've seen him do amazing things. The disciples' idea of who Jesus is has been growing. And as they've been with him and they've watched him do his miracles. They recognize Jesus is more than a good man, more than a teacher, more than a prophet even. And Jesus knows the time is now for... Jesus knows that it's time for him to go to the cross. It's getting closer and closer. And he knows that for his disciples to stay solid through what's coming... They must know for certain who he is. They must have clarity about who he is. Their idea of who he is, it cannot be wishy-washy. It must be concrete. And so he asks them 
the questions he asks in this passage. Now, obviously, if you're familiar with this passage, what we see in verse 29 is the key part of our passage. But the most important question to answer is who do I say Jesus is? Now, notice the progression in Jesus's question here. First, he asked them, who do other people say that I am? And after getting some answers, Jesus turns the question to them. It's as if he's saying, "Okay, you know what other people say about me. But what say you? Who do you say that I am? It was one thing for them to know what others said about him, for others to say who he was. But the most important question was for them to know who Jesus was. As we seek to answer this all important question, we must realize the world will provide a variety of answers. And the answers will come from a variety of motivations. We see this in the passage. Notice one of the answers about who Jesus is, is that he is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is dead at this point. He's already been beheaded. And we know from an earlier chapter that some think maybe this is Jesus is John the Baptist who has risen from the dead. And the major proponent of the idea that Jesus might be John the Baptist risen from the dead is Herod. And Herod, he makes his profession about Jesus being John the Baptist because he feels guilty. He feels guilty because he is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Now, I don't have time to to go deep into this, but just kind of a, a reminder of what happened. John the Baptist preaches. And when he sees Herod, he preaches against Herod's sin. Particularly, Herod is living with and married to his brother's wife. And John the Baptist preaches it is not lawful for him to be sleeping with his brother's wife. Now Herodias, Herod's wife, doesn't particularly like this. She's not a fan of it. Herod's not overly a fan of it either, but he knows John the Baptist is a righteous man, probably a prophet, and he doesn't want to mess with him. But Herodias presses. He has John the Baptist arrested, put in jail. One night, Herodias' daughter comes before Herod and all of his friends, and she does this lewd sort of dance to entice him. And when Herod and his friends are all engaged in her lewd dance, he says, ask what you want from me and I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. She goes and asks her mom, what should I ask? Here's what I'm offered. And she says, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So she comes back and says, that's what I want. John's head in my hand on a platter. Now, Herod was sad. He didn't want to do that. But because he had made an oath in front of all of these people, he felt obligated to do so. So he had John the Baptist beheaded. As you can imagine, having a man wrongfully beheaded might weigh on your conscience a bit. So Herod's confession about Jesus is motivated by his guilt at having John the Baptist beheaded. Now guilt can certainly influence our thinking about who Jesus is. And when this is the case, we're motivated by a desire to ease our conscience. But we're really not motivated by a desire to live as devoted disciples of Jesus. Most often when we see people make a confession about Jesus that's motivated by guilt, it comes 
when things have started to go bad in their life, usually as a result of their own actions. They've made poor decisions. They've done some things that they shouldn't have done. And now there are some negative consequences begin to come into their life. So, if particularly if they have any sort of a church background whatsoever, they go back to the church. Now, so far, all of this sounds really good, like what they ought to do. And it is. And as they come, they often cry and they confess and they promise to do better. They, they make big, bold proclamations about how they're going to live for Jesus from here on out. And if guilt is the motivator behind this proclamation, behind this confession of Jesus, then this living for Jesus will only last until the guilty feeling goes away. It, it may last days. It may last weeks. It may even last months. But once the guilt has subsided... All they confessed and all they promised regarding Jesus falls by the wayside. For in reality, there was very little desire for Jesus. There was only a desire to have their conscience soothed. There was very little or no desire to live as a deeply devoted disciple of Jesus. They, they just wanted the guilty feelings to go away. They wanted someone to tell them it would be all right. As Christians will do when someone comes and commits their life to Christ. It's all going to be okay. Jesus has forgiven you. All true statements. But if a person is only confessing Christ out of guilt. Desire to be with Jesus. Desire to know Jesus. And a desire to live for Jesus. Is not a part of what they want. All they want is for the guilt to be taken away. And once the guilt is gone. All of their confession about Jesus falls away and they go and do go back basically to the way they were living before. Now, there's also a confession about Jesus that's influenced by what we might call the the spirit of the age. Right. The spirit of the age is essentially what the world and the culture at large says Jesus is at the moment. We see this when it says Jesus is Elijah in verse twenty eight. The Jews of this day were waiting for the coming of the promised Messiah who would usher in the kingdom of God. Now, many of the scholars of the day felt time was right for him to come. The problem is they had forgotten there were what we might call two streams of prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. One stream of prophecy dealt with the one who would be born of a virgin and would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The other stream dealt with the one who when he came would destroy all the enemies of the people of God and would establish an eternal kingdom. The Jews of this day were focused on the latter. They wanted a conquering king as their Messiah. Now the reason this was their focus is because of what was going on in the world at the time. Israel had been conquered by Rome. Rome occupied their country. Romans weren't necessarily nice when they occupied a country. They imposed taxes the Jews felt to be unfair. And everything the Jews did was subject to Roman scrutiny. In fact, many of their customs and laws had to be changed because of the Roman government. One example is uh, they even had their high priest in Jewish, according to the Jewish law, when someone was high priest, they were high priests for life. Rome actually made them change that. Because they were afraid of a high priest having too much power. And so every few years, 
the high priest had to change because the Romans forced it to happen. We see it in, in the gospel accounts. So as you can imagine, the Jews hated the Romans. They didn't want a suffering servant Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah who was going to come and tell them to love their enemies and turn the other cheek and, and go the extra mile. They wanted a Messiah who would come with fire in his lips and a sword in his hand and would kill the Romans and cast them out of Jerusalem and set up a kingdom that would span the globe but would be centered in Jerusalem with them as the people of prominence around them. So when others said Elijah, they were kind of focused on that. The reason is, the book of Malachi says that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Right? So they're seeing Jesus, and they're saying he's doing great things. Certainly he's not ordinary. Elijah was odd. Jesus is different than us. Maybe Jesus is Elijah preparing the way for the real Messiah who's going to come and kill the Romans and cast them out. Their confession about Jesus was influenced by the thinking of the age in which they were living. And every age has their own idea about who Jesus is. Several years after Jesus ascended into heaven and before the last of the apostles passed from the scene, the answer to who is Jesus was he was a divine being who posed as a human, but really wasn't human. This was an early form of the heresy called Gnosticism. But that wasn't Jesus. In the late 1800s to mid-1900s, the answer to who is Jesus was that he was a social worker. The social gospel these people promoted focused almost exclusively on Jesus' caring for the needy and his teaching about caring for the needy. They promoted the idea that if you followed these teachings and his example, that if you cared for the poor... You were good to go with God regardless of how you lived or what you may have believed. This was not Jesus. He is not a social worker. One of the modern elements or modern answers about who is Jesus has to do with a, a Jesus of absolute inclusion. This Jesus would never tell you how you ought to live your life so long as you don't hurt others. This Jesus says love is love. This Jesus would never tell you something in your life that makes you happy is a sin. This Jesus just loves and accepts everyone exactly as they are. And they're perfect just like they are. And so he would never dream changing their lives. This is not Jesus either. One of the key elements of who the world always says Jesus is, regardless of the age, is it will deny his deity and it will make him far less than he really is. To quote one of the people of our age who seek to tell us who Jesus is, we must give Jesus a demotion. The world, the culture at large, will never have a correct answer as to who Jesus is. Now, Peter in verse 29, Jesus says, okay, that's what everybody else says, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. Peter gives us the correct answer. 
Now, looking at Mark, how do we know this is the correct answer? And we could say, where did Peter get his information? If it wasn't motivated by guilt, if it wasn't motivated by the spirit of the age, where did Peter get this information? How do we know that it's right? Matthew's account of this encounter gives us the answers to these questions. After Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus commends Peter for his answer and then tells him that this answer did not come through human intuition, but through divine revelation. The Father is the one who revealed Jesus to Peter. And it's the Father who reveals Jesus to us. But the Father doesn't reveal Jesus to us in the same way that he revealed it to Peter. The Father reveals Jesus to us through the Word of God. If we are ever going to answer the question of who is Jesus and answer it correctly, we must get the answer from the Word of God. The Word of God reveals to us the Son of God. Who does the Word of God reveal the Son of God to be? Well, the overarching teaching of the Word of God is Jesus is the one and only Savior of humanity. Now, there are many aspects of who Jesus is that are revealed in God's Word. But this aspect is the one Jesus emphasizes in verse 31 when he begins to talk about his death. After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus knows they understand the answer, and he begins to then tell them about his coming death and what's going to happen to him. Jesus' death and resurrection are what make him unique among all the other religious leaders the world has ever known. Now, one of the most disliked doctrines in Christianity is the uniqueness of Jesus. Most people can accept Jesus is a way of salvation, a way to God. They're fine with saying Jesus is one way among many. He can be your way, but I can have my way, and we're both right. But what the world is not okay with saying is Jesus is the way, the only true way to God and to salvation. Yet if we're going to take God's Word seriously, we must recognize this is what God's Word teaches And we don't have time to do a deep dive on references that talk about this, but take some time this week and look them up if you're curious. John 14, 6, Jesus claimed to be the only path for salvation. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's his claim. Now, that's a claim. But did his disciples, did those who heard him, did they understand him to be saying he is the only way of salvation? They, in fact, did. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 5. 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. We find those who heard Jesus, those who were disciples of Jesus, in Acts confessing Jesus the only way of salvation, or in Timothy and John writing and teaching the church, Jesus was the only way of salvation. There is no legitimate question about the fact God's Word teaches Jesus alone saves. If there is a question we might have, the only one that would be a legitimate question is why? 
Why is Jesus alone the Savior? Why can't being good save us? Why can't we be saved through some other religion? Why can't some other path bring us into light? The reason Jesus alone saves is because Jesus alone solves the problem of sin. Truly, that is the greatest problem humans have, is our sinful deeds and our sinful nature. Now, to understand sin, we kind of have to go all the way back to Genesis. But it's going to be a quick survey. God creates man and woman, puts them in the garden, creates a garden, puts man and woman in the garden, tells them they can eat freely except for one tree. One day they're hanging out apparently near the tree God said not to eat from. And the serpent comes to them and said, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And they're like, oh, we can eat of any of them except for this one. And if we touch it, we're going to die. If we eat of it, we're going to die. The serpent says, it's not true. God is trying to keep you from something good. He knows if you eat that, you'll become like Him. So they look at it, and they're like, you know, it does kind of look like it would taste good. I bet it would fill me up. And I like that idea of being wise and knowing what God knows. So they take it and eat it. And when they do, they die. Not physically, they die spiritually. And they become separated from God. The separation from God is visible in the fact that when God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hide from Him. And when He calls them out from their hiding places, we find they've tried to cover up their own sin. They recognize they were naked for the first time. And they had tried to cover up their own sin. And as God begins to talk to them and to deal with them, one of the things He does is He, he promises in Genesis 3 and 15 that one day a Savior would come. And the serpent would bruise the heel of the Savior, but the Savior would crush the head of the serpent. Now the Savior, what we call the Savior, He would be, in the Old Testament, they referred to Him as God's anointed one. Or maybe they would refer to Him as the Messiah. And then when you get to the New Testament, and it's translated in Greek, the word anointed one is translated as the Christ. Peter's confession that you are the Christ is a confession that Jesus is the promised one who would come. He is saying you are the one that our nation and the world has been waiting on since Genesis chapter 3. Now one of the results of Adam's sin is that all the descendants of Adam, including you and I, have been born with a natural resistance to the rule and the reign of God over our lives. Now, this doesn't we don't have to think of it in terms of God. Just think about it in terms of anybody telling us what to do. How many of us in here today, if we were to be honest, if somebody were to say, don't do that, our first thought is, really? Who do you think you're talking to? I'll do whatever I want to do. Right? I mean, I literally have pictures of going to museums where it says, do not touch, and I've got my finger on it, touching it, because ain't nobody going to tell me what I can't do. Now, that's not boldness on my part. That's sin. That's sin. It's sin in me that doesn't want anyone to tell me what to do. And guess what? It's sin in you that doesn't want you to tell anyone, anyone to tell you what to do. Well, that resistance to being told what to do, it extends to God. 
That's why when we read God's righteous commandments about the things that we shall do and the things we shall not do, we think, I don't want to. We don't want to, not because we're smarter than God. We don't want to, not because we have a new path that nobody else knows about. We don't want to because we're sinners. And ain't nobody, even God, going to tell me what I can and can't do. So we've all sinned by choosing to do things God has said not to do. We have sinned against God. That's where we are. God's word, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So there's where we are. All have sinned, have a wage and a payday coming, and that payday is death. A question we might ask at this point is, what if I don't feel like I'm a sinner? I mean... I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to try to say I'm perfect, but I'm basically a good person. I don't think I deserve the death of a sinner. Well, how do we answer that question? Because, again, for most of us, that may be, well, how we feel. The reason we feel that way is because we don't understand sin. The culture has influenced our view of sin. We think of sin as something maybe you ought not do, but you're probably going to do. And it's, ooh, it's kind of, it was so good, I just couldn't help it. Right? We order desserts that are sinfully delicious. And so sin is, is not a big deal. And when sin is not a big deal, we don't understand, it shows that we don't understand sin. And so what we say is, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. And I certainly don't deserve the wages of sin, a sinner's death. To understand sin, we have to first understand God's standard for righteousness. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is essentially living like there is no law. Right? Acting like life is just a free-for-all and do what feels good to you. That is lawlessness. Now, the law, as it's meant here, isn't man's law. It is God's law. And as it is meant there, God's law refers to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments make up God's absolute standard of righteousness. Basically, everything in God's Word that says do this or don't do that, in some way or another, flows out of the Ten Commandments. It's an application of the Ten Commandments in one area or another. So the Ten Commandments, thou shalt, thou shalt not. God's standard for righteousness. Now, in order for us to be righteous by keeping the Ten Commandments, we must perfectly keep them from birth to death. Perfectly, right? Because the law, the law grades on a pass or a fail scale. So either you pass with 100% success or you fail. And... This has to be for all time, right? This isn't like I had this one really good day. And on this one really good day, I did everything I was supposed to do. Woo! I'm righteous. No. It has to be every moment of every day from the time we were born until the time we die, we can never fail. Not even in a small way because the size of the violation doesn't matter. It's the violation itself. Even one violation of God's law makes us guilty. It makes us guilty in God's court. And it makes us subject to the punishment of God 
It makes us earn a wage. Now, Romans 3, 19 and 20 tells us that the better we know God's law, the more we realize we haven't kept it. Right. So you could do a cursory examination of the Ten Commandments and think, I think I've done that. For instance, shall not murder. I've never killed anybody. Woo, I'm good. But mm, it gets more difficult than that. Jesus in the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it was said you shall not murder, but I say unto you. And then he goes in to say that the spirit behind the law of shall not murder, that if we've ever been angry at someone without a good reason, without cause, or we've condemned someone in our anger, or we've ever treated someone in contempt with contempt, we have broken the spirit of God's law. Now, I'm going to go there. Something important for us to see with this is how different Jesus' standard is from the world's. The world says anger is always justified. Rage against the machine all you want to. Condemn people who are different than you. Treat people you don't like with absolute contempt so they understand what scum they are. That is always a legitimate and a righteous response. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says it is never a righteous response. Jesus says that attitude is sin. And it's a sin that makes us guilty before God and in need of a Savior. Now, probably the greatest violation of God's commandments comes in the first four commandments, dealing with our relationship with God. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Again, you could have a cursory examine of that and say, well, I've never worshipped Allah or Baal or Buddha or any of the Hindu gods, so I'm, I'm golden. However, the command to have no other gods before Yahweh is far more than not worshipping a pagan god. To have perfectly kept this law... We would have to have had God as the supreme object of worship and devotion and love and service in our life. Every moment of our life, every day of our life. Now, it couldn't be in words only. It's not enough to just say, God's first, bro, understand that. It has to be in words. It has to be in our attitudes. It has to be in our actions. It has to be in how we react to stressors. It has to be in our values. It has to be in our priorities. It has to be in every area of our, how we spend our money, how we use our time, how we treat other people. No area of life is exempted from God being first. So if there's ever been a time in your life or mine where we did what we wanted when we knew it wasn't what God wanted, we have sinned. If there has ever been a time where we put someone else's desire over God's desire, we have sinned. If there has ever been a time in our life where we were more concerned about pleasing a person than pleasing our God, we have sinned. We have broken God's command. We are guilty before God. We have earned the wage of sin. And we are desperately in need of a Savior. Now, if we were to look at all Ten Commandments 
we would see it play out this way in each and every one. So where does this leave us? It leaves us condemned. Because all have sinned, fallen short of God's glorious standard. All have earned the wage of sin, which is death. The eternal wrath of God will be poured out on sinners. That's huge. Not sin. Right? It's not murderers or murder that gets cast into the lake of fire. It's murderers. It's not anger that gets cast into the lake of fire. It's angry people. It's not contempt that gets cast into the lake of fire. It's those who treat others with contempt. It's not the attitude of idolatry that gets thrown into the lake of fire. It's those who have been idolaters by putting other things ahead of God. This is what's waiting on all of us on our own. We have earned the wage of sin. However, this is also why Jesus came. Jesus came to save us from the terrible wrath of God our sins have earned. This is why He died on the cross. Jesus' horrific death on the cross wasn't because He was a martyr for the cause. It wasn't for some sort of nebulous thing like being an example. It wasn't just because of love, to give an example of love. It wasn't because He made the wrong people angry. Jesus died on the cross to save us from the wage of our sin. Every sin makes every person who commits the sin deserving of death. Every sin. And the punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy God is not merely physical death or spiritual death. It is eternal death. Eternal death is to be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Revelation 20 and 14 calls this the second death. The horrors of hell show us the terrible wrath of God against sin. This is what Jesus took on the cross in our place. Jesus endured the wrath of God against our sin until He cried out, It is finished. He was then taken down off the cross and laid in a tomb. When He said it is finished, He was saying God's wrath had been fully satisfied. The penalty for sins of the world had been fully paid. When we believe on Jesus, we are saved from our sins because He took the wages that our sin have earned. Now, this is good news. But there is an implication with this that some could see as not good news. Since Jesus' death in our place is the only sacrifice God will accept as payment for our sins, then we can't just turn over a new leaf. We must embrace Jesus. We can't just make moral reforms in our life. We must embrace Jesus. We can't just try harder and do better. We must embrace Jesus. We can't even just be more religious. We must embrace Jesus. God offers salvation and eternal life, but is only found through Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. Jesus alone saves, because Jesus alone has dealt with our sin. While other religions may seem to offer salvation and eternal life, it is an illusion. Because only Jesus can save us from the justly deserved wrath of God. The reason, the most important question to answer is, who do I say Jesus is? Is because Jesus is the key to it all. 
To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, if Jesus is not who God's word says he is, and if Jesus did not do what God's word said he did, then Jesus is of no importance at all. However, if Jesus is who God's word says he is, and if he did what God's word says he did, then he is of ultimate importance. The only thing Jesus cannot be is moderately important. The question before us all today is this. Who do I say Jesus is? This is a personal question each of us must answer individually. It doesn't matter who our parents say Jesus is. It doesn't matter who our spouses say Jesus is. It doesn't matter who our friends say Jesus is. It doesn't matter what our culture says about who Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? You personally must answer the question. Today, through the Word and through the Spirit, Jesus is asking you, but who do you say that I am? And every one of us must give a response to Jesus. Now, when we talk about responding to Jesus, I'm not saying try harder. I'm not saying be more moral. I'm not saying turn over a new leaf. I'm not saying do better. I'm not saying be more religious. When I say respond to Jesus, I'm urging you to turn from your sins to Jesus, believing He died for your sins and rose from the dead. You must believe on Jesus to receive all Jesus died to provide and all Jesus makes possible through His life and His death. But... Believing on Jesus is more than believing there's a God out there somewhere. People die and go to hell every day who believe in God. Believing on Jesus is more than believing there was a guy named Jesus who existed. Believing on Jesus involves the will, the mind, the heart, and the will. The mind learns the information. Jesus is the one and only Savior. He died for my sin. The heart desires what the mind has learned. I want the salvation Jesus offers. But then the will makes the final and lasting decision. The will chooses to reach out and take hold of Christ. It is possible for the mind to understand, the heart to desire, and the will to not step over the line. I lived for many years this way. My granny Doolin explained the gospel to me when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. I understood clearly for the first time. I knew enough about the Bible to know I didn't want to go to hell. And I really did want to be saved. But there was a problem. I also had other things I wanted to do that I was fairly certain Jesus didn't want me to do. I was going to join the army. I had read about what soldiers did. Fairly certain Jesus wasn't going to approve of that lifestyle, but I was going to do it. So the mind understood, the heart wanted forgiveness, but the will would not cross the line and grab hold of what Jesus offered. To take hold of what Jesus offers requires the mind to understand, the heart to want, and the will to reach out and grab. Turning to Jesus involves turning from sin. We cannot pursue Jesus and pursue sin at the same time. 
We turn from one to pursue the other. To reach out and take hold of what Jesus offers requires us to let go of self-sufficiency. Letting go of our self-sufficiency requires us to accept there are no good deeds we can do that will ever merit our salvation. Letting go of our self-sufficiency requires us to accept that Jesus' death on the cross is the only, only basis for our acceptance with God. Letting go of our self-sufficiency requires us to receive Jesus as Lord who determines what we do, what we believe, and how we live. We cannot cling to self-sufficiency in Jesus at the same time. We must let go of one and take hold of of the other. This is a decision that each of us must personally make. You alone will choose Jesus. You alone will confess who Jesus is. And I'm pleading with you today. Maybe there's things about life, things that have happened, things in God's word you don't understand. Don't let what you don't understand keep you from what you do understand about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Don't let the passing pleasures of sin keep you from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Don't let your pride and your your sense of self-sufficiency keep you from everything Jesus offers and has done for you on the cross. Flee to Jesus and be saved. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes and stand. If you're here today and you say, I I know, my mind knows what Jesus has done. My heart desires what Jesus has done. And my will is ready to take hold of Christ. I want you to raise up your hand as an act of the will, symbolically reaching up to take hold of Christ and the salvation that he offers. I see your hands. We're going to take a few minutes to pray right now. If you raise your hand, this is the time to cry out to Jesus, to confess him as the Christ, to receive him as your Savior and Lord. I'll pray. The altars will be open if you want to come forward and pray where you are. The most important thing to do is to cry out to Jesus in this moment. Father, we love you today. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for what you've given and done. We thank you for Jesus, who is our source of salvation. I pray today for those that have raised their hands. Father, begin to work in their lives and strengthen them in their relationship with you. Begin to make them and give them a confidence in their salvation. Father, let them experience the fullness of your spirit and the fullness of what Christ has done for them upon the cross. Father, for others who may have needed to raise their hand but didn't, I pray your Holy Spirit would continue to press upon them. They would always see Jesus calling to them like the passage at the beginning of service. Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Though the warnings against sin are severe, and they're serious, I mean, they're, they're scary. 
But greater than the warnings against sin is the call of our Savior. Father, I know that there is an enemy who seeks to condemn people, push them down, make them think they're worthless, they could not be saved. Let, let us all understand the call of Christ is far greater than the condemnation of the enemy. Father, let us not let things we don't understand keep us from what we do understand about Jesus. Lord, we all know the passing pleasures of sin. It's real. It's there. But let's not let those things keep us from Jesus. God is today to reach out, take hold of Christ. Come to know him in ways we've never known him before. We ask in his name. Amen. The altars are open if you want to come.